Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you please turn in your Bibles once more to the book of Jeremiah, the 15th chapter, and the 6th verse. Jeremiah 15 and verse 6. Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward, therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. Well, I once read about a, a man who was going through such a terrible time of, of spiritual anguish and sorrow. And the reason for it was several things. One was he was going through terrible uh, afflictions in life, so many problems. Another problem that he had was he wasn't really persuaded that he was a Christian. In fact, he wasn't sure at all that he was saved. And the third thing that was bothering him was he found that he could not pray. Every time he would set himself to commune with the Lord and to pray Earnestly before the Lord, he found that his heart was shut up and it felt like the heavens were like brass and everything he said, it just bounced, bounced down, never got up onto the throne room of heaven. So he went to uh, an old uh, man who was a retired minister and he, he told him about this, especially the, the need to pray and the inability to pray. And, and the minister gave him some rather firm counsel he said well what you need to do is you need to go home you need to fall to your knees and you need to begin earnestly praising the Lord and if you can't find anything else to praise him for you should praise him that he has not cast you into hell already and it's a hard saying that that this man received but in a certain sense, I think it is wise. It is wise for this reason, that there are such seasons in life where the stark truth of the wrath and the judgment of God can actually be a healing thing. A healing thing because it can be that first step from recovering from a time in life where, where things are, are such are such distortion are so distorted we're not able to see things in their proper proportion and place and importance things that are important seem seem small and things that are insignificant seem large it's it's times like that that we must come to the fundamental things where do we stand with god what is our relationship to him are we in a gracious relationship can we find a true and a sound hope of salvation or indeed are we yet those who are under the wrath of God it's a stark thing and it's something that's held forth isn't it in this text which we just read it's from uh, the mouth or the pen of the prophet Jeremiah and he is speaking for the Lord and he's he's speaking of the terrible and the horrifying disposition of the Lord against the one whom he would destroy 
And of course, when we come to a worship service like this, we find that there are many uh, different spiritual conditions in which people find themselves. There will certainly, certainly be in any congregation of the Lord those who've been rescued from such a terrible state. They've been rescued from this wrath of God. And likewise, there will also be those who are still under the wrath of God. And I think that there is something profitable, something profitable about looking at this verse. I found throughout the week I couldn't shake it. And as I prayed about what to to preach on, it was something that I was led to. And so, with the Lord's help, I'd like to like to open up this uh, verse under under the theme "Those whom the Lord would destroy." Those whom the Lord would destroy. Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou hast gone backward. Therefore, will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee? I am weary with. Repenting. The first thing that we should observe about this verse is that there is this stark truth that is held for us before the Lord of God. There are those that the Lord will destroy. God, who is a righteous God and a holy God, he is not at peace with everyone. Indeed, To be at peace with God is a very exceptional and a rare thing in the great history of this world. And the great number of people since uh, the sin that our father Adam plunged this world into have found themselves in this category, those who will be destroyed by the Lord. But there's actually a particular context and a focus to this in the chapter which we come to here. And you might remember a number of weeks ago, we considered the previous chapter of uh, Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 14, where the prophet was especially pleading for the southern kingdom of Judah, that people of God, um, many centuries before the coming of Christ. And it was in the context of a terrible drought in which the, the economy was devastated and the people were dying of thirst. And And the prophet is repeatedly pleading and pleading for the Lord to show mercy in the face of this judgment that came down upon the covenant people. And he resumes that thought here in this chapter. You notice how it begins there in verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out from my sight and let them go forth. So you see what he's saying there. He takes two really holy men from the past of Israel. There was Moses, whom children you might remember took the the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And there were all those terrible plagues that came down upon Egypt. But when they took them out of the land of Egypt, right, they brought them to that great mountain. And when Moses went up the mountain... Actually, what, what happened was a terrible thing. The, the people, they began to worship this statue made of gold. And they began to treat that statue as though it were God and to, and to worship that statue. 
And you know what God said? He said, I'm just going to wipe out this people. They obviously uh, don't love me. They don't obey me. And you know what happened? Moses, he prayed. He prayed for the people. And he said, please, Lord, don't destroy them. He appealed to the mercy of God, and God, in his mercy, did not destroy the people. But, but you hear what he's, he's saying now. The Lord is saying, even if someone like that were, were to be praying for this people, it's, it's not going to help them now. And you notice how, how he ended that verse. Let them go forth. Let them leave my presence. Let them go. And then it's almost like there's a dialogue, and, and uh, Jeremiah uh, re- responds in this way, and it shall come to pass if they say unto thee, whither shall we go forth? So in other words, you say, go, but where will we go, Lord? Then thou shalt tell them, thus saith the Lord, such as for death to death, and such as for the sword to the sword, and such as for the famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord, the sword to slay, and the dogs to tear, and the fowls of the heaven, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will cause them to be removed, and so on. So what is he saying here? He's saying that the judgment that is coming upon this people is so very terrible. Many of these people will die under an enemy sword. They will be slain and killed. Many others will actually be devoured by animals and birds, and, and still others will be led away into foreign bondage. This is the terrible judgment of God. He will destroy the nation, he says. And he kind of ends uh, this particular section there in verse 5 with, with these really, really sad questions that really seem to seal the whole uh, section for me anyway. For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? And who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Who's going to even care when all this happens? You've... You've been finally brought to this place where you're without any friend or without any help. You will be destroyed. And there might be those who would say, well, uh, there are are better parts of the Bible to focus upon. We can focus on other parts of the Bible. We don't have to talk about this. We don't have to, to really be confronted with the reality that God said this to a particular people, at a particular time. But congregation, this book of Jeremiah, you can, you can try to read it sometime. It's, it's a long book, and it's filled with sections exactly like this that speak about God's coming judgment. Well, God have focused so much, so many very full and vivid words describing the judgment of God if this was not very important for us to take into account. You know, these things were prophesied before they came about. Jeremiah warned this, 
this stubborn people, that all of these terrible judgments would come upon the land of Judah. And I wonder what would happen if Jeremiah were in winter in our own day and he were, were going up and down the streets here in Canada and he were warning people about the coming judgment of God. How would it be if, if Jeremiah would warn people that because of the sins of Canada, and there is coming a terrible war, a war involving much carnage and bloodshed. And many, many people will be destroyed. And it isn't just a, a happenstance. It's not just an accident. No, it's, it's as it says from our verse here, I will stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. All these things from the hand of the Lord. Well, indeed, you can read the news and you can find out that in, in our day there's so many wars and, and rumors of wars and from t- between great and terrible powers that, that have weapons that can annihilate entire cities. And, and there are many parts of this world that are much less free even than what we experience here. And, and we can look at the whole course of human history and say that, that it wouldn't be very unusual at all for a country like ours to come under the kind of carnage that's being spoken of here. It could be, be very well the case that because of the sins of Canada, we also could be subject to such judgment. It ought to be something that we at least consider and that we, we have much reflection about. But I also want to say that there is obviously a direct application to each and every one of us. I don't think anyone can read these verses, at least I can, without thinking of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, fear not them which can destroy the body, but fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. These are temporal judgments that's being spoken of here, but their source is in the very wrath of God, which is also visited in eternity upon the sinner who is outside of Jesus Christ. You can see that, for example, uh, later on in this, chap- in this um, prophecy, in chapter 21 and verse 5, very similar language is used, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 21 and verse 5. And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. If you would know the true God, you must know him as he is revealed in his word, and that is as a God of wrath. His wrath burns against sin. It burns against your sin and my sin. There's no sin which the wrath of God does not burn burn against. And so if you or I or anyone would find ourselves in eternity, facing such a wrathful God, then we must, each one of us, confront this question. What hope have we? What hope have we to escape the wrath to come? There's lots of things we can think about, lots of things we could talk about this morning, but that's what I want to ask you today. How do you expect to escape from the wrath to come? Have you thought about that? Has it, has it been brooding in your mind? Have you, has it ever been a weight to you? How can you escape from the wrath of this God? If he would stretch out his hand before you in judgment for your sin, then how is it that you would expect to escape? 
Well, that in the, in the first place that we see from this verse, there are those, indeed, who will be destroyed by the Lord. And the, the second thing I'd like to focus on from this uh, text in verse 6 uh, is that this is a very just thing. You hear about the judgment of God, and what is it that the natural human heart, full of pride, wants to object and say, well, that can't really be true. That wouldn't be fair. I know myself. I know my heart. I know others and how well they think of me. Surely God would not be so disposed towards me. Does, does, does this person speaking from the pulpit even know who I am? Well, indeed, let's consider this verse and really mull over the logic of this part of the word of God. It says, thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord, thou hast gone backward, therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. So there is that word, therefore, it tells us the logic of this. Why is it that there are those who are destroyed of the Lord? Well, that it is a very just thing, a very proper thing. There is no blame to be assigned to God whatsoever. Rather, it is a very just thing that sinners should be destroyed by God. As he says there in the beginning of this verse, Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou hast gone backward. Well, what is it that he's talking about? Well, he's talking in particular about the sin of that king Manasseh, right? We read about that a little bit in the scripture reading from the book of 2 Kings, and he comes back to that in uh, in this verse, doesn't he? In verse 4, Uh, right before our text. And I will cause them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? It's a very prominent theme in uh, this Uh, part of Jeremiah's prophecy, especially the sins of this king, Manasseh. And he didn't reign forever. He wasn't even reigning when when this prophecy was written, most likely. But he's held forth as really expressing the terrible apostasy and and departure from the Lord that is uh, communicated in this verse. It's also spoken about in chapter 19 of, of Jeremiah's prophecy. If you look there in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offering unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. So many things we could draw from this, but I'd like you to notice just a couple of things there. You'll notice that this sin of Manasseh that he had committed, committing terrible idolatry, building altars to a false god, and even massacring and sacrificing children, in human sacrifice. That this, this indeed was the sin of a particular king, as you can see from the context of, of chapter 19. But as well, the whole nation was implicated in it. 
Every time you are in a relationship to one who is sinning, you are also responsible in some fashion for that sin. If there is sin in your family and you are not addressing it and you are not fighting it, then, then in your measure, according to your ability, according to your responsibility, according to your knowledge, you'll be held accountable before God for what you did or didn't do about it. If there is sin in the church, you are also responsible as a member of this church for what you do or don't do in addressing that sin. And if you're in a nation like Judah or like Canada in which great acts of injustice and idolatry and immorality are taking place, then every one of us, in a certain sense, are held responsible for that. It's it's also the case that God deals with nations collectively and holds them responsible for how they deal with the law of God. And so how would, how would uh, Jeremiah address a nation like ours, a nation drenched in the blood of, of little children killed in their mother's womb, sacrificed for the well-being and for the pleasure and, and convenience of their parents? How would he deal with this nation that is filled with false religion, filled with those worshiping to false gods or worshiping to the true God in a, in a false way? How would he, he deal with this land that is given to all manner of forsaking the word of the living God from the, the highest levels to the lowest levels? Well, surely, surely God is not mocked. Surely God does not change. Surely the judgment of God will come in one way or another. And surely each one of us have to say that if we would be those who would turn our head when any kind of evil is committed and say it has nothing to do with me, we ought to reflect on verses like this and say, what is it that the Lord would hold me accountable for? Not only for just my little world and my little life, but also for all of my relationships with family and church and society and nation and and every neighbor I interact with, how am I as one who is called to obey the living God? And I think when you uh, consider this, this sin that is committed, it, it really needs to be seen in the, in the context in which it's put in our verse. He says, thou hast forsaken me. That's really what sin is about. It's about God. It's about the honor of God. It's about the commandments of God. We live in a man-centered day where everyone just wants to focus on themselves and their own preferences and their own desires. But those things don't matter. What matters is the honor and the word of God. If we're not those who are walking with the Lord in, in true faith and dependence upon him and in true obedience to his revealed will, then we are not going forward. We are, as this text says, going backwards. That's sort of what the world would, would want to say about Christians today. You're, you're just so backward. You're not with the times. You're not getting uh, with the program. You're not being progressive. Oh, what is progress, really? If you don't have a true north, then you're going to wander off track, aren't you? If your compass is just wobbling with the, the attraction of the times, then indeed you're, you're not going to get anywhere at all. It's only where you have God as your goal that you can get anywhere at all. And so this expression, going backwards, is, 
is uh, used a number of times. For example, if you go back in Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 7, verses 23 and 24, we have this said. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imaginations of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. I heard a, a horrible story recently about um, a man who confided with his pastor that he never reads the Bible. He has no desire to, no time to, never reads the Bible. And this man claimed to be a Christian. And when the, the pastor expressed some, some concerns about this, that in fact it's not consistent with being a Christian, you can't claim to be a child of God and have no interest in the words that come from the person, from the, the mouth of the Lord who is who has saved you? Well, that man took exception to even the suggestion that there was anything wrong with a Christian who has no appetite for the Word of God. But indeed, it is an utter contradiction, isn't it? If you are not really living the Bible, if you are not yearning for the Bible, if you're not feasting upon the Bible, then it ought not to sit well with you. It ought to be a burden to you. If, if you can read the book of, uh, a book of the Bible and you can say, well, it doesn't really speak to me. If you can hear the Bible uttered in your, in your presence and you say, well, that's not, not really that appealing to me, then I think the question needs to become this. What is the problem really? Is it the word of God or is it your own heart? It's something to think about, isn't it? A searching question. How is it that we treat the word of God? Do we revere it? Is it read in our homes? Is it read in our free time? Is it stored up in our minds and in our souls? Is it actually put into practice? If someone were to point to this or that area of your life and say, how is this consistent with the Bible? What is your response? Is it to be defensive or is it to say, well, I, I can... I can really see the point. I must live in accord with the Bible. And if we are not, then, then surely we have to find ourselves in this uh, verse, haven't we? We have to say that if we are not those who are walking in accord with the truth, then we are not in a gracious state. We are still in our sins. And we can say uh, that we are also under the condemnation of this verse. Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord. Thou art gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. That last part I'd like to reflect upon a bit as well. What does that mean? What does that mean? I am weary with repenting. Well, you can say that uh, in some ways that's a rather strange thing for the Lord to say. We know that the Lord doesn't change. In him there is no shadow of turning, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet uh, there is a sense in which the Lord sometimes speaks in this way, that he has been repenting. He has been, been changing his mind. He's been going back on, on what he formally said. And... What he's talking about uh, there is in terms of his long-suffering. 
His long suffering towards the wicked. This is one of the, the glorious attributes of God that's really manifested when we look at the history of this world. That the Lord, though he is just, though his righteous wrath burns against the wicked, yet how restrained he is, how patient he is. When the Lord appeared before Moses and revealed something of his glory to him when he perceived the back parts of the Lord. The Lord, it says, uh, spoke his name in the presence of Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 34. And let's begin reading in verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, upon the third and, and to the fourth generation. It's the long-suffering of God which is revealed in his gracious name, Jehovah, the covenant God, the God of mercy towards the undeserving, the God who holds forth salvation in that wonderful promise he gave to the patriarchs, that promise that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, through you and your seed. And how was that? All that wonderful promise fulfilled, it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the Son of God, the one who suffered and died in the place of sinners, that the, that the mercy of God is manifested. And that the Lord would save any is a wonder. And the fact that he would give space and time also to those who have heard of this gospel to repent and believe in this gospel it shows that the lord is not cruel he is not harsh he is not out to get you he is not one who delights in the death of the wicked he is one who gives so many opportunities to his people Every time the door is opened, every time the word is proclaimed from this pulpit, does not the Lord God speak unto you and say, I will certainly be merciful towards you. I will be abundant in mercy. There is not one sin in thought, word, or deed that I, have, uh, I am not able to save you from. And yet how horrifying. How horrifying that in the days of Jeremiah, though they knew of this God and knew of this promise, though it was taught to them and revealed unto them by the prophets, yet they hardened their hearts as Pharaoh had done before them. And there comes that point, isn't there? Where though the Lord has been so patient, so abundant in mercy, that finally there's no more chances and there's no more opportunities and as he says here, I am weary with repenting. There comes a point, isn't there, when indeed the Lord will not give more opportunities to turn from sin. No more chances to believe in the gospel. No more time while it is yet the day of grace. And there's, there's something in that which, which really chafes us, doesn't it? 
It takes a very sanctified heart to hear of such things and say, I submit to that. I bow under it. I say, the Lord, he is God, and, and I am not. And so there's, there's many parts of the Bible that, that really try to, to vindicate this. And I think probably the one uh, that I'd like to take you with uh, now is found in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as it's found in uh, the 19th verse. What does the apostle write here concerning the sins of Israel in his own day? This is what he says. Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In other words, God is so almighty and powerful, how can he require such a strict standard? Nay, but, O man, why art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? God made you. God made you and me. And who is a creature to reply to his creator and to hold God in the dock and to hold him to our own puny minds and puny hearts? He goes on in verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and the other unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So there is the analogy. You've got a lump of clay, and you've got a potter, and he, he separates one part of the, of the clay, and he makes uh, a, a pot that he's going to use for an honorable use. It's going to be used for something great and worthy and noble. And he takes the other pot, and, and he's just preparing it for destruction. The potter takes that pot and smashes him. The potter, I think you'd agree, he can do what he wants with his own pottery. It's, it's none of our business what he does with it. And so also the Lord, the Lord can certainly, in his judgment, also store up wrath for those who harden their hearts against his word. And what is the purpose of it? Well, it says there in verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That's ultimately what this is all about. All of human history, it is about God glorifying his name, not only in demonstrating his wrath against the wicked, but also, also his mercy. Those whom deserve no mercy, who deserve the judgment of God, yet he calls them by his gospel, with that powerful gospel, both Jews and, and Gentiles, and from every background, and he says unto them, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. That is a glorious thing. And it's seen all the more gloriously when it's seen against the backdrop of God's great holiness, his worthiness, and the utter unworthiness of the wicked who reject his word. It's sober things, congregation. They are things that are not conceived in my mind or anyone's mind. But the reality is, as from the word of God, there are those whom the Lord will destroy. And so I tell you, 
this day. Decide what you will have. Will you have death or will you have life? Will you live for a moment longer knowing that you must contend with such a holy God? Well, I tell you, if these things have pricked your heart, if these things have humbled you, then I tell you, there is mercy also for you in this gospel. Flee into Christ today. His long-suffering also is towards those who have sinned countless times. And those whom he has been so long-suffering to, he will surely show mercy if they will believe upon the name of Jesus Christ.